Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast. Perhaps you've heard of them. It's a potted cast, and we talk about things we've read, and sometimes those things we've read are comic books. As is the case this week. Oh, also Andrea's my mom and a librarian, and I'm me. We read a comic book this week. We've wrapped up our long 10-part series on Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. And we're moving backwards in time to talk about Swamp Thing. Specifically, the Alan Moore run, which is largely categorized by art from uh, John Tottleman, Stephen Bissett, and Rick Veach. So this is called The Saga of the Swamp King. Uh, thing. Yeah. The saga of the Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, I guess some background might be necessary. We talked, if you go back and listen to the first episode of our Sandman series, which is called Terry Pratchett's Hat, that's the episode's name, not the name of the series. I talk a little bit about the background of Vertigo Comics, and in that I call out this book in particular as being the kind of prototype for a Vertigo Comics book. And I think, as we'll talk about this first volume, you can see the way in which the early parts of Sandman are very much following a formula established by Moore here in this book. Swamp Thing was a character created in the 70s by uh, Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson, who he... Len Wein, I think, had already been working at Marvel for a long time before he came over to DC. And so Swamp Thing is a very... Marvel character in a DC universe. Because the kind of easy explanation of the differences between Marvel characters and DC characters, or at least early on, was that the Marvel characters were darker, they were more haunted and human than the sort of bright, shiny, square-jawed DC characters. Swamp Thing is much more in the mold of, like, a Ben Grimm than he is in the mold of, like, a Superman. And they stayed on the book for a long time. It, it's uh, Their stuff is really good. It was very influenced by horror comics, like classic, like, EC horror comics, but using a sort of more serialized superhero comic structure where Swamp Thing followed into each new adventure in every issue. But the stuff he was dealing with were, like, demons and aliens and not so much supervillains. Uh, at some one point, the book ended, and then the Wes Craven Swamp Thing movie came out in 1982, I think. It was not especially well-received, but DC relaunched the book uh, to tie in with the movie. They put a new writer on it. I think it was Martin Pascoe. And he wrote that version of the book for the first 20 issues or so until Alan Moore came on. And so the first issue in this volume, Loose Ends is Alan Moore wrapping up the loose ends from Martin Pascoe's run to lay the groundwork for his thing, which will be completely different from any other Swamp Thing story that had come before it. At this point in Alan Moore's career, we're really early, relatively, in Alan Moore's career at this point with Swamp Thing. He hasn't done Watchmen yet. He hasn't done The Killing Joke. This is really the book that makes his name as a writer in America. He had mostly been known... As a writer in the UK, working on stuff like the 2000 AD magazine. I believe he had done 
Miracle Man, which we might talk about at some point because it's very much the sort of Rosetta Stone for Alan Moore's career. Uh, we've talked before on this podcast about uh, Sirens of Titan and how that book is like very early in Kurt Vonnegut's career and you can see that all of the little ideas in that book end up getting fleshed out into longer, more important works later on in his career and that's kind of the case with Miracle Man. And Swamp Thing picks up on a lot of the themes from Miracle Man which are sort of about identity and the nature of existence and like ship of Theseus type questions and also like what do you do when you have godlike powers? What is it like to be god? And so this book represents, I think, Karen Berger and Len Wein, who were the editors on it, taking kind of a chance on this upstart writer from the UK and letting him do something really wild with a book that I think at that point people, a lot of people didn't care so much about. So there was freedom to do something strange with it. And obviously it really paid off. I think, so this volume, this set is considered, it's called The Saga of the Swamp Thing. Yeah. And it comes out in 1984. Mm-hmm. And Watchmen comes out in 1988. So it's... It's 86, I think. 86. So it's pretty close in time. Yeah. So the Swamp Thing is a humanoid plant creature. Yeah. So in the original presentation of the Swamp Thing in the old uh, Len Wein and Wrightson comics, Swamp Thing was a biochemist... Named Alec Holland, who was working with his wife Linda on a biorestorative formula that was supposed to, it was supposed to like uh, stop hunger. It was a very like you know farm aid kind of like there. I think there was an element of social conscience in there where it was like, oh, there's famines, we need to stop famines. And some malevolent organization, I think they're called the Con, eventually identified as the Conclave, are. You know, sabotage his work, presumably because they have a vested interest in people starving. And he gets, his wife dies and he gets blown up in a fire and falls into the swamp and is reborn as the swamp thing. But then as we'll see in this version of the story, that's not quite what happened. Is Alan Moore the first to bring in this concept that the swamp thing is a plant elemental that he has like sort of a long history of this godlike Yeah, well, I mean, that version. doesn't even come up in this volume yet. But yeah, that's 100% an Alan Moore thing. All of the stuff, like the idea that he's not really Alec Holland is an Alan Moore thing. Him even really being a plant is an, is an Alan Moore thing. Like, he's obviously like a swamp monster, but I don't even think that he... I think he was considered early on more just like a weird bog man... That's what I felt like the early, when I thought about like what I knew about the swamp thing, mm-hmm. I kind of thought he was almost like, and he does make a nod to this, I thought he was almost like a universal monster, where he was almost like a creature from the Black Lagoon, he was just born in the swamp, and he was like a, you know, like a Frankenstein created. And I feel like I get a little bit of that like Frankenstein creator vibe from this version of the swamp thing, but... When I was reading this, this is one of the questions I had for you. When I was reading about the history of Swamp Thing, there's many different origins of the Swamp Thing and many different genesis of what, of who the scientist is that the Swamp Thing becomes. Yeah, so uh, we'll get to it eventually when the, the elemental stuff and the, the like heritage of the Swamp Thing becomes important in the book. But what Alan Moore is latching onto with that 
is that there are a bunch of these characters. There's a before the Alec Holland Swamp Thing that shows up in Swamp Thing number one. There was a prototype version where I believe the man's name was Alec Olson right. that actually appeared in House of Secrets, which sort of ties it into our uh, Swamp uh, Sandman series. Uh, but yeah, this like concept of this character has been around for a while. There are other not explicitly Swamp Thing type characters who have similar origins. There's like the Heap from Airboy Comics and. Marvel has a character called the Man Thing, which is almost identical, which happened around the same time. I believe the creator of Man Thing and Len Wein were like roommates. They happened to come up with the same idea, but slightly different at the same time. But yeah, this like archetype of like man falls in the swamp and becomes a monster man has been around forever. And so later on in this book, in a little like meta fictional twist, Elmore latches onto that. And turns it into something in-universe. But I think it's important to note that no matter what origin of the Swamp Thing that you're looking at, his genesis is created in horror comics. Yeah. And this kind of, this series, the saga that Alan Moore writes, has a very strong nod to like British 1980s horror. I mean, it even has like a preface by Ramsey Campbell. But I feel like a lot of the way that the action is driven, it is almost like it's still a horror comic. It's at least for a a good chunk of this book, it is very much a horror book. We talked in the Sandman series about how Sandman kind of starts off as a horror book and very quickly, like by the end of The Doll's House, specifically, I would say, it becomes something else, more of this kind of like epic fantasy romance Whereas Swamp Thing, for most of its run, stays a horror comic. People talk a lot about how the the way that Alan Moore innovated this book was with the stuff that happens in the Anatomy Lesson, which is the second issue in this volume. But I think you're right. One of the things he does do that really changes the book is he shifts the tone away from this sort of classic American horror to something a little grittier, more in line with stuff like that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, like Clive Barker. And whatnot. The the Monkey King story in this feels a lot like a sort of Clive Barker thing to me. Yeah, and I think you can see sort of the transformation from the 70s horror monster of Swamp Thing Mm -hmm. to this sort of environmental, technological, this sort of duality of man, this more like sort of intellectual, you know, concept of the Swamp Thing having... He... in. For part of the book, he has an existential crisis about is he man or not, and that's extremely similar to sort of the motivation of the like a Frankenstein to bring that up again. Yeah, I think the sh- big shift that Moore does is sort of laid out in this volume as kind of a thesis statement. If you take the first half of it where he's having his existential crisis and fighting Woodrow, and the second half with the Monkey King and Entergan, and you sort of synthesize those two elements, I think you get. This sort of worldview that Moore has, which is monsters, air quotes, monsters, are morally neutral. Anyone can be a monster or look like a monster. What's scary is the world. Mm -hmm. The world is monstrous. The people who are in it, no matter what they look like, are just people. Right. Because, like, the the Monkey King storyline is not a classical EC Comics horror story where someone gets a karmic comeuppance. The monster is summoned, the monster shows up completely thoughtlessly, 
by accident when people are engaged in a totally innocent game and then it wrecks their lives. Yeah, I think you start to you'll see more of that, I guess, when you meet the other secondary characters, when you meet Abby and her husband. I mean, obviously there's some kind of thing going on with them, and then you you start to meet him and start to see his interactions with other people. Mm-hmm. So, so you want to get into the events of the book itself? Yeah. So I read this comic for the first time when I was in high school. Maybe a little maybe it might have started a little earlier than that. But it was one of the first books that I remember going to the uh, comic shop every like couple weeks when I had enough money and buying the trades one by one, and then and reading them. And I, you know, finished it. And it was the first kind of like major like run or like you know multiple volumes long story of comics that I ever finished. And in the printing of the that I had originally read, it did not include this first issue. It just started with the anatomy lesson. So this is the first time I've actually read Loose Ends. And uh, it's not amazing. I think the the art throughout this is really good. They do some wild stuff with the page layouts in yeah. uh, Loose Ends. But basically what's happening in this story is... Uh, Swamp Thing is coming off of a major confrontation with his arch nemesis, Anton Arcane. Arcane is the uncle of Abby, who's a major supporting character in this book and he's like a evil sorcerer and mad scientist he wants to be immortal and he thinks that swamp things body has some kind of secret to immortality in it he's more right than he knows and he is basically in a classic supervillain way meant to be a sort of a dark reflection of swamp thing Swamp Thing is a guy who is trying to help people and in the process accidentally gives up his humanity, at least in the original conception of him. Anton Arcane is a guy who's motivated completely selfishly and willingly gives up his humanity to achieve his goals. He even kind of ends up looking like a grotesque, fleshy version of Swamp Thing. Like, they have the same kind of triangle shape with their mouths, but where Swamp Thing, it's like a ridge around his mouth. Anton, it's like he doesn't... He's missing his, like, lips. Uh, And Arcane is seemingly defeated, but there's also this evil corporation called Sunderland that is after Swamp Thing and they're revealed to be uh, behind the conclave that blew him up and like lots of other bad things that happened in his life and they basically launch an all-out assault on Swamp Thing and his loved ones nearly killing most of his supporting cast and at the very least driving some of them off and then uh, shooting him in the head and putting him in a freezer. And that's basically everything that happens in Loose Ends. I could see how this might be disorienting without knowing who these people are or what the status quo of this book was. And I kind of think it... I appreciate it being here for archival reasons. Like, this is the same creative team that works on the rest of the book, so it should be collected with them. But I definitely think the story reads cleaner with the anatomy lesson as the beginning and just throwing you in to that and having you... It's almost like seeing these characters... Rather than them just showing up later, forces you to ask more questions. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Because like, there's two characters in particular in Loose Ends, uh, Barclay and Liz Tremaine. You have no context for who they are if you just pick up this issue. They show up later, and it's almost easier to understand who they are without having seen them in the middle of this conflict. When they're just like, oh, those are some people Swamp Thing used to know. Whereas in this year, you have to figure out, like, well, what is the relationship to Swamp Thing? What is the relationship to Sunderland? 
Why are they being targeted? I they- thought it might have made more sense if they would have just started with the attack in the swamp where they were capturing the swamp yeah. thing. Like, even if that almost was like a, like, just a little, like, summary or synopsis from the other series, like, okay, he got captured. Because that's all you really need to know is this corporation captured the swamp thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, the I guess the supporting characters in this that are important... Uh, Liz Tremaine and Barclay are the least important. Tremaine is a reporter. She uncovered the connection between Sunderland and the Conclave. She wrote a book on Swamp Thing and ended up becoming one of his allies. Barclay is a doctor and fake psychic who was manipulated by Anton Arcane into giving Matthew Cable brain damage. See, that's the thought that confused me. I was very confused about all through the book... He has this terrible relationship with his wife. Yeah. And a lot of times they show him like sitting in a chair and he's creating this sort of external mind view where he's projecting some. Yeah. And it's usually something like totally inappropriate and sexual because for some reason a huge thing in his life is that his wife doesn't want to have as much sex with him as he wants to have with her. Yeah. Which is one of the problematic problems with how they deal with women in this. Yeah, so the, this is one of the weirder things that's left over from the Pasco run. So Matthew Cable is a character... Matthew Cable and Abigail are two of the oldest characters in Swamp Thing. Like, they show up pretty close to the beginning. And Cable's deal is that he was, like, an FBI agent that was assigned to protect the Hollands. Because they, like, knew that they were, like, death threats against them or whatever. And he fails to protect them and is haunted by his guilt over that. And believes initially that the Swamp Thing killed them. And so he's chasing the Swamp Thing early on. And he's kind of like a, you know, like a Javert or like a J. Jonah Jameson type figure. And eventually he learns that the Swamp Thing is Holland and they become allies. And then at some, Abigail is, like I said, she's Arcane's virtuous niece. And when Swamp Thing is pulled into a conflict with uh, Arcane, she... Like, meets up with him and they become friends. And then she meets Cable and they fall in love. Uh, at some point, Cable gets brain damage in the Pasco run. And somehow that gives him the power to manipulate reality. It is never fully explained. I think one of the things that Moore does with the way he stages the re- reality manipulation is that he implies that there's some kind of diabolic component to it. That he's in touch with infernal powers. Yeah, I think that might come up later... But it kind of really seems like he's just an asshole. I mean, he is an asshole. He's He's an alcoholic, and he's not physically abusive, but he is is emotionally shitty. But I think that also serves as the foil for why Abby likes Swamp Thing so much. Because they almost have like this sort of very tender... Relationship. It doesn't seem romantic. It may be. It doesn't? It seems like... I don't know. She. I think she's in an emotional state where she you know, finds I think the, solace in the comfort that she gets from Swamp Thing. I think the idea is we see Swamp Thing go through this existential crisis. He's forced to confront his own internal issues and ask himself who he is. And he comes out of it this like fully emotionally realized being, for the most part. 
And Matthew is a guy who refuses introspection. And he becomes cruel and petty. But I think this sort of... There's this whole concept of like... Oh, and he's the raven. Okay. He's Matthew the raven. Oh, is he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, clicked. (laughs) It just like clicked the whole thing. But what I was going to say is like this whole thing about like the duality of man. Mm -hmm. And then this whole concept of like... Who is the monster? It's almost like yeah. it, like Matthew is a horrible person, and he's a horrible. He does horrible things, and he treats his wife terribly. But he's a man, and the Swamp Thing is a in quotes monster. He's a hideous beast that ha- even though he's not that hideous, he's sort of drawn very adorably. He's like he is like Ben Grimm. He's kind of like he he's a monster, but he's sort of like organic, and he has like a very like interesting face and he's mm-hmm. not like he smiles a lot yeah and he's not like <laughs> dripping like slime i mean he's not gross he's like yeah. a, he's a really nice swamp thing but like so he, he on the external is a monster that people can't even look i mean people are like oh my god if we see the swamp thing mm-hmm. but she's drawn to him because he has sort of a more human nature than an actual human yeah uh so let's talk. So we talked about loose ends. Let's talk about the next issue because the next issue is one of my favorite comics of all time. It's uh, I think a being a masterpiece of storytelling and tone. It is called the Anatomy Lesson. Uh, you know the art is by Stephen Bissett and John Tottleman, and it picks up a while after loose Wait, ends. Before you get into it, can we talk about these covers? Yeah. Because these covers are amazing. Yeah, they're great. They're very dramatic. Uh, the cover for... What does the cover for Elise Adams look like? The cover for the Anatomy Lesson is iconic because it's this like very classical horror image of this it's like shadowy... Yeah, it's like this... The Swamp Thing is like ringed in yellow light and there's these dramatic shadows and he's like staring down this terrified man in a business suit... Oh, the, the Loose Ends cover is just him running through the swamp with people shooting at him. It's still very striking. But that, uh... It almost is like a weird... It, the the Anatomy Lesson cover almost invokes like a Batman kind of thing to me. It's with very him. bombastic. Very, like, over-the-top dramatic. All of the covers are like that. Are they by the same artist? I believe so. I think Bissette does all the covers, at least in this version. Uh, so... Yeah, it really sort of evokes that sort of iconic, like, 1950s horror comic. Like, if you would have saw that on a rack, you would see, like, a monster. It's the same thing. This is sort of like the subterfuge. You see a giant, hulking monster who you think is terrorizing this poor businessman. Yeah, and then the twist from that you get from reading the issue is the businessman is infinitely more monstrous than this one thing could ever be. Uh, so... This issue takes place almost entirely while it's raining uh, for extra drama. And what happens in it is Swamp Thing has been on ice for a while. And wanting to uncover his secrets. Uh, what even the guy's name? The guy who's in charge of this. I'll just call him Sunderland. I think that's his name, actually. Yeah. Uh, Sunderland he is this like classic 80s businessman. He hires this scientist named Dr. Jason Woodrew, who is in fact a supervillain uh, called the Floronic Man, 
to study, to dissect and study the Swamp Thing's corpse. And Woodrow is, we could, we, from the very first page, we know there's something deeply off about Woodrow because it starts with kind of a flash forward cold open where he is standing in front of this window in the rain and thinking about, he says, I'm thinking about the old man. He'll be pounding on the glass right about now, or maybe not now, maybe in a while. But he'll be pounding and there will be blood. I like to imagine so, yes. I'd rather think there will be blood. Lots of blood. Blood in extraordinary quantities. This, like, Floronic man is Dr. Woodrow. He's kind of like a classic evil mad scientist. And Mm -hmm. it's even more sort of portrayed because as he gets more and more unhinged, more and more of the action happens as his internal monologue. Yeah, this is a very dense... This book, this issue is very dense with text, very dense with panels and, like, cutaway imagery because there's a lot of weird big ideas happening here. So this is where we get the the real hook of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run. This issue was, like, mind-blowing. It t- totally changed the game on the character and is, like, rightly regarded as one of the best uh, comics that uh, Moore has ever done. And so we get this sequence of Woodrow studying the Swamp Thing, intercut with him interacting with Sunderland, which reveals Sunderland to be more and more grotesque monster of a man. And as Woodrow is examining the Swamp Thing, he comes to realize that while his body is full of organs, none of them actually serve any purpose. He's got lungs that inflate and deflate, but they don't have any capillaries in them. They're just there for show. He's got a big spongy brain, but it doesn't have any neurons. It just looks like a brain. And through a chance uh, encounter with an article about Flanarian worms absorbing knowledge through eating uh, their brethren, he comes to the shocking realization that Swamp Thing was not alcohol and transformed into a plant, but is rather a plant or colony of plants that absorbed Alec Holland's memories through his body and grew the closest approximation it could to a human form. That he is not a Alec Holland transformed into a swamp man. He is a swamp man that thought it was Alec Holland. And that makes sense because the body that he inhabits is very organic. And it has like lots of tendrils and at some point he grows flowers and he has leaves. He's kind of shaggy and organic and he's kind of like free flowing. So I guess that kind of makes sense of the way that he is. But now the Floronic Man, he also has a weird thing going on with him where he is actually, is he an alien or? So he's a weird character. So he was originally introduced, I believe, as the plant master. And he was from another dimension that was all plant stuff. And then he turns himself into a plant human hybrid. I think what's going on here is just kind of a subtle retcon to make him your basic human mad scientist character. Well, he is like the Floronic Man is his persona but is also his true form so he's actually like a man-like creature that's yellow and this is the part that kind of cracks me up this is very 70s he has like ivy underpants on but it is also the same ivy that makes up his hair yeah 
<laughs> so it's a very so he has sort of like a floral afro, but also floral underpants that are just as vegetal as his yeah. rest of his body. And he appears human using spray-on synthetic skin. Right. And but instead of being like, oh, well, maybe I can just give some of this skin to the Swamp Man so he can be a human, he just, like, wants to destroy Swamp Thing for some reason. Well, Woodrow, just, he doesn't want to destroy Swamp Thing. Woodrow despises humanity. Right. And living, like, um, you know, carbon-based life in general. But or as, not carbon-based life, but like animals in general. But as we learn later on in the series, he doesn't, even though he proclaims to be a botanist and a plant master he doesn't really understand how plants work well he's insane and when it becomes clear to him that um he's gonna get screwed over by sunderland who doesn't actually care about him and now that he knows all he's gonna get to know from woodrow he's gonna cut him loose uh woodrow unthaws the swamp thing and uh releases him the big line, he should have let, let, he should have let me finish. He should have listened. Then I'd have been able to explain the most important thing of all to him. I'd have been able to explain that you can't kill a vegetable by shooting it through the head. And then we get this image of the swamp thing growing a new body out of the shell of his old body. And whereas the swamp thing was originally drawn very smooth, is a weird thing to say, but just kind of this like green muscular figure. Uh, like that almost looks like he's like sculpted. This new, now Swamp Thing is drawn to be this much more organic, like mass of leaves and vines and roots. He he looks you know less like a lumpy like a guy with green skin and more like a man who is made out of plants. Well, I think his original manifestation he was almost like, like I said before, like a universal monster. He was mm. drawn to be like, almost like. Um, he was drawn to be like a monster. Like he was meant to be sort of like this sort of wet looking swamp thing. And now he has become more of like the essence of like the environmental aspect of the swamp thing. Yeah. And so he walks through the office in a daze. He finds and reads Woodry's notes and now confronted with the reality of his existence and the impossibility of reclaiming his humanity... He goes into a rage and eventually kills Sunderland, who is, you know, totally evil. And that's pretty much deserving of his fate. It's almost like Jason Woodrow, well, now he's manifested as the Floronic Man because he sort of gets rid of any aspect of humanity and becomes his true self. It's almost like he's trying to wield the Swamp Thing as a weapon. Yeah. Like the first thing that he hates humanity he hates these corporations that are, are sort of taking nature and turning it into profits. So he uses Swamp Thing to dispose of this evil corporate head that has been... He also is tormenting him in a way by kind of stringing him along about his research. He wants to do research and the head of the corporation keeps implying that he's going to get fired. Yeah, well, he, and he's going to send him back to prison... And I think that's why he decides to to finish him off by releasing the Swamp Thing from the freezer. But it's like when the Swamp Thing gets worked up and he's ready to like spring into action, 
he is almost like that's where it gets to be almost like a horror. Yeah, he's like that avenging sort of entity that comes and and tries to help people. Yeah, it's also like he's he's shot he, or he's like drawn and staged in the panels in a sort of monstrous way, and that we like never see a full body shot of him in this issue, which is important. Because there is a, a, a powerful moment later on in the comic where it is just a single-page spread of just a full-body shot of him. That is like this triumphant But that's almost event. like a classic horror movie where the the monster is slowly revealed to you. Yeah. And it's almost like, it's like Lovecraftian. Where it's like, you don't know, you can't tell from these panels how big Swamp Thing is. I mean, he could be the size of a regular man, or he could be a huge monster. Well, at one point, we see just his legs, and he's lifted uh, he's lifted Sunderland up, and it's clear that he's, like, a couple heads taller than him. Right. But also, in a really nice moment of um, comic book storytelling, the end of this issue loops back around to the beginning, with Woodrow standing at the window, drinking wine in the rain, looking at the rain and thinking about the old man. But if you look at the first page, it's essentially mirrored in the last page. And in the first page, we see half of Woodrow's face, and it's him as a human man. And in the last page, we see his face. We see half of his face, and it's him as the Floronic Man. I think it's interesting, too, that... it's the opposite half. He... The Floronic Man kind of reminds me of, like, Robin Goodfellow from, Mm -hmm. like, the depiction in The Sandman. He's almost like some kind of imp or some kind of like he. I mean, he's human like, but he has really long legs and really long. He's like arms. a dryad. Yeah, kind of thing. he's kind of very, and I think that sort of takes it from like the classic. This is a horror into more like this is like a you know a comment on environmental issues or the you know man's relationship with nature because that really comes into play later on. Yeah, and so this is what I was saying about Sandman following the formula laid out by this, is you get the big revelation about how this version of the character is different from the other ones. So in Sandman, it's like, no, this isn't about the superhero Sandman, this isn't about the, um, the, uh, the gas mask trench coat version of Sandman. This is a completely new character who's connected to them, but is this own sort of thing with his own other mythology and then he takes this in you know this uh kind of goofy classic supervillain and makes them into something much more terrifying to serve as the first kind of major antagonist to the hero and so in this we get the floronic man becoming you know something a lot scarier than he ever could have been before and then in sandman we get the same thing with dr d and in both instances those characters, as we'll see, uh, become this new threatening version by co-opting some of the hero's power. I think it's also important. I think you should bring up the part about the tubers. Well, we'll get to, we'll get to that in a uh, second. Okay. Because that's in the next issue. So the next issue is called Swamped. And sw- Oh, wait. Before we get into this, I'm sorry. I'm kind of like distracted all over the place. How does Abby Cable meet Swamp Thing? Uh, her uncle kidnaps him. Okay, so she has a pre-existing relationship with him. Yeah, they have, like, she... He doesn't talk early on in the Swamp Thing stuff. And so she has, like, a very, like, you know, empathic relationship with Swamp Thing. Where she understands what he's saying and they have, like, this, like, non-verbal thing. And he helps her and she helps him. 
Okay, so they, they do have a pre-exist. Because it's not really clear in this. She's just sort of like, I'm going to the swamp to see my friend Swamp Thing. And yeah. It's like, okay. So they go to the, her and Cable go to the swamp. <laughs> well, not Cable. Her and Matthew. We'll call him Matthew. Uh, go to the swamp to find Swamp Thing. And he has rooted into the ground. And he's growing these tubers off of his body. And there's like a really cool image where, like, because his face has all of these, like, creases in it. He has this, like, triangle around his mouth. And his eyes are very deep set. And he's laying back in the swamp, rooted into the ground. And water is pooling in the recesses of his face. And then, like, it almost looks like he's, like, weeping. But he's completely motionless. And there are, like, frogs and baby alligators and bugs crawling on him. And Abby is completely horrified because she sees a bug crawl out of his arm. Uh, and he has gone... He, this is the most inhuman he has ever appeared. Right? He's basically just a plant rooted into the ground now. And Abby has a hard time processing this. And her and Cable leave. He's very much trying to like downplay this to her. Which is like a first instance we see of him being, you know, kind of emotionally abusive. Uh, but they're being observed by Woodrow, who shows up. And he... In a very insensitive way, explains how excited he is about these developments and with Swamp Thing, uh, and how he has become, you know, this plant, and he's growing these tubers, and they're apparently edible, and he's taken a schist from one of them, and it is a similar structure to a yam, and then when he mentions that it's edible, it makes uh, Abby vomit, and they leave. And then we get, throughout this issue, intercut with Abby trying to deal with what's happened to the Swamp Thing and her kind of crumbling relationship with Cable and Woodrow eating one of the tubers off of Swamp Thing and, like, studying him. We get these dream sequences with the Swamp Thing in his mind confronting his past both as uh, the Swamp Thing and as Alec Holland. And they're very absurd and dreamlike there's like a wedding and his wife gets swallowed by the ground they give him a mud suit that looks like the swamp thing and then they try to it doesn't have any lungs and they try to dig him out and he's completely gone and all of these characters that are showing up in the dream sequences are other characters from the swamp thing series so there's like anton arcane the patchwork man the various aliens and monsters he's fought he comes across some planarian worms who are having the doctor, being Alec Holland, for dinner, and they're serving him with hollandaise sauce, and they eat it all, but then they're like, we left you the best part, the humanity, which is like the skeleton, and then he's running around with the skeleton, he can't hold on to the humanity, but also his wife, and then he ends up having to use the skeleton to fight the various monsters he's fought, until he's left with basically nothing, and he realizes that he, this humanity is a weight on him that he doesn't need. That it's an illusion, and he gives it up and roots himself into the ground. And then this happens at the same time as Woodrow, like, using a machine to mentally connect himself with one of the flowers he picked off of Swamp Thring, which then connects him to... This is our first hint of the green, which is this, like, vast network of, like, all plants are connected in this kind of metaphysical space this sort of overmind or like oversoul of of all plants and Woodrow uses Swamp Thing's 
flower to invade it and has this like ecstatic near religious moment which is uh later reflected by a thing swamp thing does uh as he becomes one with the green or so he believes i think this is also the first hint that you get that like not that swamp thing is actually a god but his sort of connection to the green which is this sort of um I don't know if it's like an alternative world or some type of heaven or some kind of like spiritual center that the plants in the world are connected to and that he has this long history of being connected to the green and I think that's where you get the nod that he's sort of like a plant elemental. I have always thought of the green as being kind of like the internet. That it is all the plants are networked together and by being networked they create this space or this thing that is the green and Swamp Thing is able to move through it. But I think also, I mean, there is a theory, there's a scientific theory that these plants communicate. Like there was this, there, you know, I talked about this book, Richard Powers, the overstory that I had Mm -hmm. read that was about trees. And it talks a lot about this sort of silent communications that's being studied by that the redwoods have where they can actually communicate with each other either through like their roots or through their leaves they they don't know how quite that they're communicating but there is this sort of plant communication that can happen and i think they're like sort of connecting to that but mm-hmm. i feel like that's how you know that the floridic man is not there's something plant-like like about him, but he's not a plant. Because one, he can't connect to Swamp Thing, and he can't connect to the green unless he forces himself in there. Yeah, so the next issue, uh, which is called Another Green World. Man, the title pages also are just beautiful. Like, the way that they work the lettering of Swamp Thing and the issue title into the page... And this issue, we get a like kind of a crash course on what the deal with the green is. I always refer to this as the um, angry red world issue. Because also... it starts with this monologue from Swamp Thing where he goes, This is a red and angry world. Red things happen here. The world eats your wife, eats your friends, eats all the things that make you human. And you become a monster. And the world just keeps on eating. I couldn't take that being eaten. I couldn't take the red world, so I walked out and left my body behind. And I'm somewhere else now. And he's in the green. But I like how, like, the coloring, like, when it's the swamp thing, the colors are, like, shades of green and blue and yellow. Mm -hmm. And then he has these really bright red eyes. And it's, like, you know, the the complementary colors. And then when he's in the real world, like, when he's talking, like, when it's with Matthew or Abby, you all see these tones of, like, pinks and more sort of artificial psychedelic colors. And then when he's, you know, the Floridic Man is this bright sort of saturated, like, sulfur yellow. And yeah. it's kind of like the colors reflect both the emotion of what's going on, but also, like, heighten the drama, mm-hmm. which I think is really, really successful. There's also, like, this... the That Red World monologue is over a sequence of a red centipede killing, like, a blue bug. And as the panels go, the our perspective pulls out... Until we see that they're actually very small, and this battle is happening on Swamp Thing's neck. Yeah. And then he's in the green, and it's this, like, very... It reminds me of, uh, like, old Doctor Strange comics, 
it's this sort of like abstract world of like flowing vines and space and he comes across this essentially a tumor in the green this red pulsating angry substance which we come to realize is Woodrow. right that's how you know that he's not like yeah he, Swamp Thing is in balance with the green. He's, mm-hmm. like, environmentally, like, self-aware. Like, his color, when he's interacting with the green or he's just being himself, he's, like, this neutral, natural color. And the Floronic Man is always, like, sort of out of contrast with, like, the balance of nature. And I think it really shows, like, this tumor is red, so you know that that doesn't belong in the green. That's not natural. Yeah. He is a, he's an invader from the red and angry world. Right. And so we get sort of interspersed in this issue with Swamp Thing's sort of psychic journey through the green and his confrontation with, and, it, and then eventual coming to under, his confrontation with this red thing and then coming to understand what it is, is interspersed with Woodrow going on a murder spree. Yes, that is really just like a horror movie. That's like a slasher film that happens in the beginning of this episode. Yeah, you talk to a mean, bunch of teenagers yeah, in a car. Teenagers in a car and they die a horrible death. And you know, like I did think it was interesting, like the one part instead of being like in a traditional comic, it's like pow or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a panel where they're yelling, ah <laughs> and it's like the the words make up the panel and then there's a car and then the kids running and then you see like the slash and the slash is like the Vines are attacking these like punk teenagers, and you like they just show the Floronic Man's eyes. It's very much like a classic horror movie. Yeah, the art and the panel layouts in this are very visceral, like lots of jagged panels and like small insert ones. There's this really good sequence, uh, a few pages after the ah panel where um, Abby stumbles upon the dead teenagers. And the way they portray her seeing them is there's one big panel where she is in the background and the kid hanging from the tree is in the foreground. And then we get three increasingly large insert panels that are just a slow, extreme close-up on her terrified face. Oh, yeah. That's very classic horror. I also like when the Swamp Thing is like, he swims down into the green and he's like looking at the tumor and you realize the tumor has grown to such a huge scale that it's even like larger than the swamp thing. And then, you know, he asked like, he asked the tumor like, who are you? And he's like, I am Woodrow. 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 And then he's like, and you know, who is Woodrow? And then he kind of journeys into his own memories and sort of relives uh, the realization about his nature and he remembers that the the guy who wrote the notes was Jason Woodrow. Yeah, and then like the Floronic Man at this in this issue is even more sinister. He's almost like a wolf man. He has very sharp features. He's more muscular, more linear, mm-hmm. more jagged. Yeah, there's more like thorns growing out of his face. His he's got these like huge, like dragony looking ears now. And uh, he comes up terrorizing this town, LaCroix, Louisiana. He destroys their church with vines. He forces a kid to tape him doing like a terrorist manifesto. Yes. And then he traps everyone inside their houses with the plants and increases the o- makes the plants increase the oxygen input. 
until even the smallest spark will cause a huge conflagration. And then a guy's, like, cigarette ends up making his house explode with all his kids in it. But that's why I said he doesn't really understand. I mean, okay, he might understand individual plants, but he doesn't understand the relationship between plants and man. Well, I think the idea is he's he's this red pulsating tumor. He's blinded by rage and anger. He's not thinking clearly at any point. He's He's high on having invaded the green and... Whacked out of his mind on all of his anger and resentment that he's been carrying around. And he just has become this, like, plant wraith. I think it's also, I think at this point also, now Abby has been terrorized. And she's, like, in this heightened state of fear. Yeah. And her first, like, primeval thought is she runs to the swamp. And she tries to run to the swamp thing. And he's laying down. And then, you know, she starts to get upset. And she's connected with him. And he burst out of the swamp it's in like amazing. a hugely dramatic way and he's kind of it's like it's kind of like he's Jekyll like he has transformed from this like passive like swamp creature that's floating along with this like existential thing and he and he you know you see like his fully formed body but then you also see the connecting part of him where he's coming out of the swamp and you see like salamanders and frogs they're all like flying off of him and water's dripping and he like stands over her and you think that she's terrified and then he comes out fully formed and she was like oh thank goodness you're here we need your help well she goes alec and he goes no not alec and then he just walks off and like sasquatch but then she's like also like secretly like looking at his swamp thing buns as he's walking away like he's like totally buff and he's just like the swamp thing and she's like, okay. Yeah, and then there's this really heartbreaking sequence where the kid with the tape shows up at the police station in another town. Right. And he, the sheriff watches the um, the tape and he realizes what's going on and he makes the call to Washington. And then he goes home and just destroys all the plants in his house, including the tree where he and his wife carved their names and where his kids had built a tree house. Because he's just like, he knows what's happening and he... <laughs> He has to do what it takes to protect them. And it's just like... And it, it it illustrates how fucked up Woodrow's plan is because he's making people destroy plants. Well, I think that's it. And also, it's kind of a comment on, like, a classic, you know, like, horror movie where a monster is coming to your town. He has the harshest reaction, which is to burn everything down. Burn yeah. every plant down, kill every plant, destroy every tree. Instead of saying, like... He doesn't even really fully know what's causing this attack. He's seen the video from... We see Woodrow's video in the next issue. So we know that Woodrow basically says his plan directly to this guy, essentially, from when he watches the video. But it's also a comment on what was going on in society at the time and the concern. This is the beginning of when we start to realize that we're having Mm -hmm. long-term environmental effects. I mean, it's not quite where we're, like, really aware of, like, global climate change, but we're getting to the point where we're realizing, like, all of these great chemicals that we loved in the 60s and the 70s to make our gardens green and, and then, you know, the whole fallout of, like, silent spring so we're starting to realize that like we're doing catastrophic things to the environment and bad things are starting to happen this is an extreme example of like something bad we did to the environment and now we have this catastrophic effect yeah 
This is a very post-Silent Spring comic. So we go cut back to the Floronic Man, and now everything is bright reds and yellows as like the town is burning around him, and he's screaming at people and like just going crazier and crazier. He starts yelling, calling himself Wood Rue. He says, "I am the pain and the bitterness of the woods, and I am come to announce the green millennium." He's kind of like a really sinister version of the Lorax. He's just like. His eyes are like crosses at this point, yeah. and like he's slathering, like his mouth is like almost like a wolf's mouth. He's got these sharp teeth, and he's very sort of spiky and just, and then like he's like reaching up, and you can see like he's becoming more tree like. He's growing more of his little ivory patches are growing across yeah. his body. And he's like torturing this woman as he monologues to her about how he's going to destroy all animal life on Earth. He, he says, uh, what does he say? Uh, he says that the plants talked to him and they said, let us have another green world, another green world as there was at the beginning before the beasts crawled up out of the oceans, these long green centuries where no birds sang, where no dogs barked, where there was no noise, where there was no screaming meat. I am the regret and anger of the forest and I, and then a voice from off panel goes, Woodrow, and then we just get two huge panels of Swamp Thing in like incredible detail. And he says, no more. And then the last panel is him from behind facing off against Woodrow. Yeah, and I think that's why it's kind of like he's like Swamp Thing is back. He's yeah. like come to this sort of understanding, you know, about his his entity and what he his self is. And he's sort of he knows that he's not Alec Holland and he knows that he's not a plant. But he's come to some understanding that in some way he is actually both of those things. And then that's when you sort of get like, yeah, like that's it. Like Swamp Thing is here. Like finally he's arrived like in his full like self-awareness. Yeah. And so the next issue is called The Roots. Oh, so we, we other, the other thing we find out with the, the guy who's burning all the plants. It says that, you know, he called uh, Washington and Washington called the Justice League. Of course. And so the next issue starts with the Justice... It's this great... Uh, it's, it's another one of those great things where this book takes place in a superhero universe. But because superheroes are not the focus, we kind of get to see how strange they are. So we get this narration, this great Alan Moore narration that goes, There is a house above the world where the over people gather. There is a man with wings like a bird. There is a man who can see across the planet and ring diamonds from its anthracite. There is a man who lives his life so fast. There is a man who moves so fast that his life is an endless gallery of statues. In the house above the world, the over people gather and sit and listen to a dry, mad voice that whispers of Earth death. And then we get to see uh, really nicely rendered, like very realistically rendered images of Woodrow's video manifesto. Yeah, and it's almost like Alan Moore treats these superheroes like they're gods. Yeah. His, uh, the thing with, um, Watchmen is Watchmen actually started as a pitch for an, in, like, a DC Universe story that was going to be about the end of the DC Universe called Twilight of the Superheroes, referencing, obviously, Twilight of the Gods. Uh, so I think that is one of his big thesis statements. And they're kind of paralyzed by indecision, the, the They're like justice. a bureaucracy. Yeah, I think that's a, another <laughs> thing he's getting at. They're, they all have these plans, but they can't come up with a... With a perfect one. And they're worried that they'll make things worse when they intervene. And then we get some great, uh, you know, fired up 
Green Arrow. You know, he's the socially conscious guy who's looking out for the little man. And he says, man, I don't believe this. We were watching out for New York, for Metropolis, for Atlantis. But who was watching out for LaCroix, Louisiana? And he's like totally indignant. I love Green Arrow. And there is silence in the house above the world. Yeah, so it's like they... Now, are they aware of Swamp Thing? Do they know he exists? I don't think they do. Swamp Thing will eventually... There, even later on, there is an Alan Moore, like, around the time of this book. I don't know if it ends up in any of these collections, but there is an Alan Moore penned DC Comics Presents issue that's a crossover between him and Superman, where he meets and saves Superman, and Superman never even realizes that he's there. So I don't think they know about him at all. I think maybe Batman does. He might have met Batman. Uh, but I think Batman is conspicuously absent from this sequence in the house above the world. Uh, and then we get Swamp Thing's showdown with Woodrow. And it's just this... I love the way this is staged. Uh, because it's all this monologuing from Woodrow. Just like... Like I said, just dense with word balloons from this guy yammering at Swamp Thing. And then with no words, Swamp Thing just backhands him across the town. <laughs> and this town effect is just back. But I think that's kind of like... There's a, an element of like comedy. I guess it's... Maybe it's a... You, because you think about the the movie you know mm-hmm. it's kind of like campy or whatever and i think you sort of see that like yeah swamp thing is like here though he's in the mold of like i really of lots of characters that i really like like the thing does this hellboy does this where it's just like okay you said your thing now i'm just gonna punch you yeah like yeah but my favorite part is when the Floreman picks up the chainsaw yeah, so yeah, <laughs> it's like it's this is like nonstop. Like this is much more action and action drama driven than than the Sandman series, where there's like there, because it's a horror story. I think they can go more forward with mm-hmm. the violence. Yeah, so there's so like the whole page is ripped apart by a giant drawing of like a chainsaw slashing. Mm-hmm. Well, there's this whole thing where when the fight starts, there's this man who's in the background with Abby, and he says that he's going to go fetch Evangeline. And they're like, what's Evangeline? And then he shows up with a running chainsaw and ends up getting knocked out by a vine from Woodrow, who then picks up the chainsaw. And he had earlier been ranting about dipping chainsaws into the tender flesh of my brethren, talking about right. trees. And so now he's a tree man who has a chainsaw. And he's trying to fight the Swamp Thing. And then uh, Swamp Thing hits him again. And he goes, he asks him why. And Swamp Thing goes, because you are hurting the green. There's a lot of ellipses in Swamp Thing's dialogue. Alamore has him kind of talking like two to three word bursts, then ellipses, then two to three more words. Well, that's what... Like he's got a very, like, you imagine he's like a very slow, deliberate... And because now he knows he's not a man, he has to make the vocal cords move to talk. Like, I think there's an effort to him talking that a normal person does not have. Right. And I think it kind of gives you almost that humanized monster. Yeah, he's just kind of, kind of a, like, yeah, it's a little bit of a Frankenstein thing. But it seems like, I mean, this is the part where I feel bad for the Floronic Man. Because he's kind of like, me? Like, at that point, it, like, hits his brain that he's not defending yeah. the green or helping the animals or, or helping the plants because he as, in essence wants to do is stop humanity from existing 
But by doing that, he's going to stop the things that the plants need, which is the carbon dioxide. Yeah, and then he, he fights back and says that he's working for the green, and uh, Swamp Thing gives him the, this is not the way of the wilderness, this is the way of the man. Your way, Woodrow the Green did not do this. You did. And it's like in that one moment, what, he becomes from being this like horrifying, threatening, avenging god to being like what he was always, a pathetic, lonely, bitter man. But it's almost like Al Moore is saying like, you know, the whole world is like crumbling environmentally. So like... Worrying about picking up the litter is not going to solve the problem. It's the same thing. His weird idea that he has to avenge the plants is actually hurting the plants. Yeah. And it goes back to all this stuff about balance. One thing is good because he is in balance. Woodrow is imbalance. And he doesn't understand his nature. You know, he is a man that thinks he's a plant. Swamp Thing was a plant that thought he was a man. Now he knows he's a plant. But the Floronic Man never has that moment of self-awareness because even at the end of this when they come and they come to when the humans come to take him away he pretty much just pretends he's a human yeah well he also like he gets another like sort of wham question from swamp thing when he asks him like hey what are the plants going to do when the animals are dead and that like breaks his concentration and severs his connection to the green and he he is again reduced to just being a man, but he can't even be that anymore. He's allowed himself to become too monstrous, and we have this sort of like humorously grotesque sequence where the Justice League comes to scoop him up, and he's sprayed the artificial flesh on, but his face is too inhuman now, so it's just like fleshy thorns coming out of his head. Yeah, it's really weird. And they're like, "Are you okay?" And they're like, uh, "I guess we're gonna take him to Arkham." <laughs> And then he has this sort of reconnection. The Swamp Thing reconnects with Abby. And even though he is no longer Alec Holland, he forges a new relationship with her. Yeah, and he realizes that he wants to be alive again. He doesn't want to just be rooted into the ground. He, like, goes off on his... She asks him where he's going to go, and he says he's going to go to the swamp. And he has this little speech to himself where he says... Um, that he wants to be alive. I want to walk here forever. I want to struggle with the alligators turning over and over in the mud. I want to be alive and grow and rise up. And then we get this really beautiful last page where he is standing in front of the sunset with his arms outstretched, mimicking the pose that Woodrow does when he embraces the green. But this is like a pure, you know, better version mm-hmm. of it. And it's like, it's for, he's not framed as being monstrous at all. It's like, he's drawn like you know a beautiful tree in a in a landscape yeah it's, it's very there's of, herons in the background yeah it's very organic and he's connected he's in the water he's connected to all the parts of it and then you go to the next one <laughs> which is the sort of very very much a nod to like 1950s like campy horror films and it you know it has i guess that's abby and she looks like a huge yeah. You know, like she's Amazon, a... and she's being pulled into the swamp by the swamp thing, and there's water dripping down. And then the trick of that is we see this image later on in the issue, and it's like a fun thing between friends where he's like pulling her into their water to mess with her. Right. Like it's like pushing someone in the pool, but it's framed in the ish- on the cover like it's this moment of horror. But I also, I like this 
issue, especially because it really sort of like kind of there's some problems with it, which we'll talk about yeah. late in you know in pretty soon. But I kind of like this sort of occult mystery sort of. This is very much British horror in the eighties. A mysterious man comes to town, and he you know makes sort of all these prophetic statements. Yeah, and, so there's a couple of things going on. I think rather than going issue by like beat by beat, because this is a, th- a three issue arc. Right. The end of this, um, and so what. Happens the sleep of reason is the name of the first issue. I kind of would, if you were going to give a name to this whole arc, it would probably be that. Uh, so what's happening is a mysterious man arrives in a town who seems to have knowledge, grim knowledge of the future, and you know, watchful, knowledgeable viewers will recognize him immediately as Jason Blood, the human version of our old friend Entragan the Demon. Uh, and he has arrived at town on the heels of. This this uh, entity called Kamara, and so Abby's hanging out with the Swamp Thing. Her relationship with Cable is getting a little bit more tense. We see more of him using his weird powers. Uh, swamp Thing is like walking around at the bottom of the swamp, just like hanging out. There's some really beautiful imagery of him, like in the water with like catfish all around him, and. Uh, Abby gets a job working at a school for autistic children, which is not handled the most sensitively. And there's one of the kids at the uh, school is uh, named Paul. And he has this thing where he needs people to spell correctly or else bad things will happen. And he draws disturbing imagery of people getting killed for spelling incorrectly by this entity he calls the Monkey King. And what it turns out happened is... His parents were messing around with a Ouija board and accidentally summoned this fear demon, Kamara, which is a character from the Jack Kirby. And Jason Blood slash Endrigan is here to hunt it down because they've they've found out that it has escaped. And Abby wants to protect the kids and the demon, the um, Kamara, feeds off of fear and it starts terrorizing the school for, because there's these kids have all of this fear. Because they're, they're kids and a lot of them have been through traumatic events. And then eventually Swamp Thing and Etrigan step in to fight the the Monkey King slash Kamara. And it is eventually defeated when Paul overcomes his fear. But just like he can't just come in as Jason Blood and say, I'm here to help. Well, he has to act like he also has a sinister motive. Well, we find out later on he... He turns back into Jason Blood and has a conversation with Abigail. And he reveals that he got tricked by Etrigan, essentially. That they had come to an understanding that they would both become more like each other until they were one being. But now he has become more like Etrigan, and Etrigan has only become more like Etrigan. And he's losing ground. And I think that's the idea. If Jason Blood was in full control of himself and his facilities, he maybe could have just walked in and offered to help these people. But he has to do it in a weird, manipulative way because he is in the throes of this demon. How did he get caught by Etrigan? He betrayed... He was a knight in King Arthur's court who betrayed them and was bound to the demon as punishment by Merlin. Oh, okay. So he has a long... He has been with this demon for a long time. Yeah, he's been around for for a, quite a while. It's interesting, though, because there's really no mention of Jason Blood in The Sandman. No, I think by that point they've been separated. Okay. 
Because when Etrigan shows up in the Sandman, he's just a demon in hell. One of the things that Alan Moore does in this is he takes the idea of him being a rhyming demon to an extreme and writes all of his stuff in, uh, like, like it's Shakespearean sonnets. I think, though, the whole thing, I mean, the boy who's traumatized and is obsessed with things spelling properly Mm -hmm. and this sort of connection that Jason Blood is making with the Ouija board and the time, you know, all, and Etrigan with his rhyming, it's sort of all, like, you really, you're clued into that there has something to do with language in this story. Yeah, because what it turns out is the reason the kid is obsessed with correct spelling is he, not understanding how the Ouija board works, he thinks that what summoned the demon was that it spelled camera wrong. Right. And so he... Be, he lashes out against people he sees spelling things incorrectly because he's trying to protect them. And I think the idea is the the Kamara fear demon, the Monkey King, takes the shape of whatever you're afraid of, but it needs a master to stay on Earth, and it picks Paul as his master because what Paul is afraid of is the Monkey King, is its own natural form. I think it's the only thing that, I mean, I this is a horror story, yeah. 100%. One of the factual parts that sort of drove me a little bit crazy about this thing is she literally only works at this home for wayward children for one day. Yeah. And then all this shit happens. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's weird. <laughs> but whatever. It's a little convenient. Uh, but she somehow, I guess they're implying that she is somehow drawn to this situation because she has a connection through her uncle Arcane, and she's connected to the sort of well demon world in some way. And there's an implication that there's something. So there's there's some broader malevolent force at work here, because blood implies that something must have been pushing the planchette. The demon didn't summon itself. Somebody tricked these people into summoning the demon, and then also. Another thing that happens in this issue is when Abby runs off with the Swamp Thing to fight the Monkey King, Matthew has a moment of, like, moral clarity a little bit and tries to go and help. But as the caption boxes tell us, the night can make a man braver but not more sober. Burma shave. And he crashes into a Burma shave billboard and is dying in the car when some sort of entity in the shape of a fly approaches him and offers him his life in exchange for something. That requires the fly to crawl into his mouth. Well, what's more horrific and what's more iconic of a horror movie than a fly? Mm-hmm. There's also a thing where right before that, as he's leaving, I think, there's a picture, there's like a commercial on TV that says, Are Insect Allies? Well, yeah, I guess this is a whole comment on pesticides or insecticides. When Matthew is tortured and he now he has this condition where he can manifest these mm-hmm. sort of external I guess they're daydreams but he can actually see them physically outside of his brain. Yeah. Is that from Arcane as well? Uh so he's yes. like preconditioned. So I guess Arcane is waiting for a moment when he can um, inhabit Matthew's body, which I guess is what happens or he becomes an entity yeah. in It's the- not revealed, but the heavy implication is that the force that's caused the demon summoning and the thing that is possessing Matthew now is the spirit of Arcane. And I think this is where it sort of gets a little heavy-handed about this sort of dual nature of man because every single character 
except maybe Abby, and hers is more like philosophical, mm-hmm. are actually two creatures in one. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that is happening. There is a lot of that going on. I mean, we saw a little bit with the Floronic Man, but now it's very... I mean, Jason Blood is Etrogen, and Swamp Thing is Alec, and, you know, so it's kind of like... And now Matthew is Arcane, and... Yeah. And she's sort of dueling with this sort of her obligation to Matthew as this is the part that sort of fails me as like it feels very 60s in this sort of the portrayal of women like Abby can be a very strong character but in this episode she sort of feels very like damsel in distress well I think the thing with her and Matthew makes more sense with the context of the earlier comics where Matthew was a good guy and he has gotten worse and I think that's why she feels this obligation to him. But, yeah, I, she is a little damselly. But, I mean, she she's not at any point... It's not great, because she is she is sort of helpless, and she does need uh, Swamp Thing and Etrigan to help her. But she does... I, it's better than other versions of this, because she's not ever, like, paralyzed by the fear. She does, like, take the initiative to go get help from Swamp Thing, rather than waiting for him to just show up and save her. I like this too. And it's also both in this and the other one, Swamp Thing does not intercede to help people until she makes him do it. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. He's kind of like a neutral space. I like that this is sort of like a companion to the Floronic Man story where Etrigan is like, he is all yellow and red. And even though he's a demon, he is acting in a heroic manner in this particular story. And it's a kind of a good like balance to what you know how this swamp thing is depicted and how he is depicted mm-hmm. uh yeah and then the, the, <laughs> the last issue of this is all just basically just one big fight with edrigan swamp thing and the monkey king at the end paul overcomes his fear and reduces the monkey king to a little bug-sized creature that edrigan eats and then he has a nice little exchange with swamp thing uh where he asked Swamp Thing if he was afraid, and what did he see? And he says he, he saw fire. Once I knew someone who died by fire. And he's like, are you afraid? And he goes, yes, a little. And then the kid is comforted by the fact that, like, if a monster can be afraid, then, then maybe it isn't so bad. And they walk off. Swamp Thing walks him back to the school, which is going to be interesting when he shows up, like, with a big Swamp Man with this little kid to explain, like, where he went. But whatever, we don't get to see that. And that's, that's the end of the issue. Abby, uh, Abby drives off with the possessed Matthew. Yeah, and I guess this is kind of set up for, like, a future situation. She doesn't know that her uncle is now possessing her husband, who has turned into a jerk. Yeah. And we get to see the accident, that the drunk driving accident that Matthew references in Sandman. That's this. Yeah, this and I, th- I thought it was really sweet that, like, the young boy was not afraid of... Swamp thing. And I think it was kind of saying, like, you know, like, he's innocent and he's open minded and he's not afraid of looking at the swamp thing. Everybody else is like, oh my God, I can't look at him. He's a horrifying swamp man. Yeah. So there's some rough stuff in this story uh, that I do want to touch on real fast. Just the portrayal of autistic children is not terribly well researched, it's not like gr- grotesque. But it is just like, you know. I don't want to 
it's why it's he not had like to be t- like specifically like they're autistic. I think he just knew the. It feels like he just knew the word and didn't really know what it means because it seems like it's more because they of like a general kind of like home for children like, with tr- troubled or you yeah, know traumatized trauma children. Or- uh, and then also one of the children's fears is very obviously a sexually abusive father. But how about like they're... It's just played for horror, but like, I don't know, it's a little, potentially a little cheap. But also, none of the people who run that place seem like they are in charge. Yeah. Like a... they're all running around and they're like bell bottoms and they're... I mean, at one point they roll all the kids into like mattresses, mats. They roll one of the kids into, into a mat because he's... He has, after his encounter with the uh, Monkey King, like, kind of, I don't know. He's having some kind of episode. I did like the fact that, like, sprinkled throughout the issue, they had the children's drawings of the different ways that they saw Mm -hmm. the Monkey King. So you realize that he had been tormenting all of the children in a way that was most fearful to them. Can I... I want to say that the thing that is the scariest to me in this issue that f- freaked me out when I first read it and a little bit here is the way the Monkey King interacts with Paul. Like the weird subservient way the Monkey King acts towards him where it like licks his hands and stuff. Well, yeah, I think because you realize it's kind of like the same thing when like when you start to like with John Constantine and he deals with these demons. Mm-hmm. The demons are the same way. They're evil and they want to do bad things, but they need a human host to allow them to do it. Yeah. And I think that's what the Monkey King is doing. He's trying, he's a demon and he's not very good at it, but he's trying to, what he thinks is make Paul like him so that Paul will accept him and allow him to stay. Yeah, and that like fumbling way that this like a awful inhuman creature tries to make a human like him. I find to be very disturbing. Well, I think it... I mean, this is... It's very effective. Like, I think that's a huge plus in the comics' favor. But it's more than any of the, like, visions of fear. Those little quiet moments with Paul and the Monkey King well, I found I think to be the most also, frightening. the Monkey King is almost like a visualization of, like, our own anxieties. Mm-hmm. And he, in pretty much in some way, is saying to Paul, like, embrace your anxiety and then allow me to stay and then it's kind that's kind of like scary but it's also relatable because there everyone deals with a part where like their own fears and anxiety have come to you know have gotten to them and there's that dark moment in your mind where you're like okay i'm always going to be afraid i'm always going to be anxious and then so he's just saying to like paul like let me be your demon and let me be that way. I mean, you're never going to get better. You're always going to be crazy, kind of yeah. scared of of the dark and letters and all these things that you fear. I'm not going to help you with that. But if you let me stay, then I will get what I need. Yeah, and it's a nice, uh, like like you said, companion to the previous story where we see Swamp Thing, you know, come into this self-realization and overcome these issues. And it's like through his example and how Paul... Gets over his stuff. Like, it's a nice, like, he's paying it forward. Yeah, and it also, like, the Swamp Thing is, like, he doesn't pander to Paul. Yeah. He was like, yeah, that was really, shit was scary. I was scared. I know you were scared. He wasn't like, you're a big boy. You don't need to be scared. You know, Swamp Thing is here. He's going to fight them out. He was like, we were both scared. Like, weren't we both scared? So he kind of, like, he treats Paul almost like an equal, and he, like, he can... 
he's sympathetic of what Paul is going through because he himself, even as a giant swamp man, is going through the same exact thing. Yeah. So that's the end of this volume. Um, what did you think about this? I liked it a lot. I, I liked the visuals. And I really liked the shaggy, organic swamp thing. I thought that was a really nice touch. But I think it really, like, the tension and the drama that they create is a very classic horror way of doing things. You know, like, showing close-ups and headlights and sort of, like, the angles of where you see the action happening sort of creates a sort of anxiety, Mm -hmm. which I think is really successful in a horror story. And I think that really worked out. Um, Yeah, it feels very British. It feels very 1980s. It kind of feels like it's like a time capsule of the of the period and what we thought of like the environment and you know coming out of the seventies and going into the nineties started to think about like our fear of the environment and our fear of technology. I mean, this is very much getting into that point where technology is starting to play a role in our society and we're coming to grips with how we feel about it. Like you said, that whole green thing is sort of a nod to the, like the fledgling internet and the dependence on computers that we're starting to to get into. I like that. Like I like the forward by Ramsey Campbell. I think that sort of set the tone that this was, even though it's an American comic, it had a very British aesthetic. And I really, I mean, that whole like transition, like from occult seventies horror, you know, where they were afraid of vampires. And moving into the sort of like the eco technology suspense that, you know, becomes prevalent both in like fiction and in pop culture in the late 80s. I think it really embraced that. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. The last thing I wanted to touch on, which you didn't talk about it, is the Alan Moore's reinterpretation of Swamp Thing's origin is inspired. Oh, no, it's not. I believe it, it did inspire a thought experiment called the swamp man the idea is that uh suppose you went into a swamp and were struck by lightning that killed you but at the very same moment that lightning reorganized the molecules of the swamp to create a being that was exactly like you in every way and had all your memories you know is that you are you dead like it's that sort of question well i think it plays to the question of like if you change are you still the same person And Mm -hmm. I think this is an extreme example of it. But I wanted to talk about this beautiful draw, this beautiful painting at the end of the issue. Oh, yeah. It's by Michael Zuli, who did a bunch of the art in Sandman. That was the cover of the first, the trade that I read in the original printing. I feel like this is almost like a more sort of traditional artistic expression of the original, the, the draw, the panel where he comes out, where he's like, you know, happy to be mm-hmm. the swamp thing, and he comes out of the swamp, and he's sort of tree-like that you talked about. This is a this is like a watercolor painting of like the swamp thing, and he's holding like he's like waist deep in the swamp, and his hands are wreathed in rose bushes, and he's kind of like looking off. Yeah, the... and he has this sort of very soft gaze into like there's like a kingfisher in a tree above him. It's just very like yeah, like. And lush sort of springtime and it's sort of painted image. in this sort of traditional sort of british landscape painting almost but it's like this portrait of the swamp thing it's really great it's really effective 
Yeah, I the the covers for these current printings of the collections are just kind of like black background with a picture of Swamp Thing's face, and I think they're a little disappointing. I really like those old ones with the painted covers because it didn't it made it feel different from a lot of other books. Can you imagine like going through the like DC Comics collections and getting through all the Superman and then getting to that image and being like, what is this? And that was sort of like, I knew about the, that the Alan Moore Swamp Thing run was, you know, really well regarded, but that's part of why I picked it up because I was just like, this looks so, this looks so different from anything else that's in this pile. Yeah. And I think this has a very, I mean, I said it about the same man series. It has a very literary feel about it. I like at the very end on the back cover, it says, There is a red and angry world. Red things happen there. The world eats your wife, eats your friends, eats all the things that make you human, and you become a monster. And I think that sort of sums up the whole thematic arc of this volume, you know, about like, what does it mean to be a monster? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be like in balance with nature to be out of balance. And I think the whole arc of this saga is about duality. And I said it many times and mm-hmm. I feel like it really is the theme. And it's almost the theme of like the creation of this. You know, you have this sort of dual nature. In the beginning you have one writer's view of Swamp Thing and then it morphs into a second writer's view of Swamp Thing. And you have two almost two origins or, you know, the end of one Swamp Thing and the beginning of another Swamp Thing in one issue. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I uh, I agree. Do we have anything else to say about Swamp Thing Volume 1? Saga of the Swamp Thing Book 1? I don't, I don't think so, except it's the same thing that we could say about the same man, is that this is sort of the genesis of a lot of the themes that Alan Moore goes on to talk about in things like... Um, Watchmen and the other things from hell and all these different things that he ends up doing, you start to see the sort of core artistic values that are like coming to light and things that are very Alan Moore-ish, you know, that are iconic of the of the things that he ends up creating as he moves forward in his career. Yeah, you can see a lot of Swamp Thing's like existential crisis in... Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen. And you can see a lot of the horror stuff and the way he's sort of building that tension here in stuff like From Hell. So what are we doing next? Uh, so next we're doing another novella. We're doing The Word for World is Forest another by Ursula Le Guin. plant-based yeah, story. <laughs> it'll fit in nicely. Uh, and then that, we'll also in that episode talk about, uh, you finished reading all the Hugo Award winners. Right, yeah. I so have some... it'll be a sci-fi packed episode. Put on your space suit. And then, uh, obviously, after that, we'll be doing Saga of the Swamp Thing book, too. Which I'm excited to... I love this intro. And, like, you know, I said I love the, the anatomy lesson, but I'm excited to to get into some of the other weirder stuff that happens in this comic. So what do, what can we expect in book two? Uh, is this when Constantine shows up? Uh, I don't believe this is when Constantine shows up. He might show up in volume three, maybe. But, honestly, Wait, this is the one I remember the least about. Does Alan Moore create Constantine? Yeah, Constantine's okay. first appearance is in uh, in Swamp Thing. He shows up as kind of like a uh, he's he shows up in Swamp Thing thirty seven. So we won't get him for a little bit, but yeah, he, when he first shows up, he's kind of like a magic 
like a mentor or a figure leading Swamp Thing around into this sort of broader occult conflict that he's about to become embroiled in. Uh, yeah, th- yeah. I don't remember Volume 2 all that much. It'll be interesting to see what's in it. I think there's a couple... It's like mostly shorter stories, maybe. But uh, yeah, no, it'll be good. All right. So, uh, be kind to Mother Nature? Yeah, and spoiler alert... What are your plants? <laughs> yeah. And spoiler alert, stay tuned.